Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam McGuall Sandwich from Guidehouse Insights. And Rebecca is off gallivanting with one of her friends tonight. So um, we will be doing another show with her again shortly. But yeah, not she's, today. She's the popular one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're, the two of us are stuck at home and when she gets to hang out with a friend. Yeah, that's okay. Our dogs like us. That's true. As long as, have, as long as as long as I have treats. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, not to derail us. What what kind of treats does your dog like? Uh, she likes chicken jerky and um, uh, actually just about anything I give her, as long as it's have something you, to eat. Have you tried? Our dog is nuts about apples and carrots. If he hears you open the little bag of like the the, the baby carrots. He'll come from whatever room he's in. Daisy does like apples. She's not, she doesn't seem to be as fond of carrots. Rosie, our old dog, um, was a lot fonder of carrots. She loved to eat carrots, but Daisy's not as crazy about it. But she does, she does love to have her evening Kong full of peanut butter and kibble. All right. Yeah. Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Uh, Oh, we can bring it around to cars. Uh, So the Kong, um, I was looking at that when we got it and I was like, that, that looks like a, you know, like a, uh, a bump stopper, a snubber. Yeah. Um, it was apparently inspired by a Volkswagen bus transmission mount. Uh, the guy who. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. The guy who came up with that, he had a, a shop and his dog, just his German shepherd or whatever, kept stealing one of the transmission mounts and gnawing on it. So it's like, all right, fine. We'll make one. At least that's the story. I don't know. Well, the funny thing is when I prepare the Kong for Daisy every evening, you know, as soon, as soon as I pick it up, she knows and she'll come and sit there just outside the kitchen area, sitting there calmly licking her lips the whole time while I'm filling it with peanut butter mm. and kibble for her. Yeah. And you go a little slower, make them drool. It's <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's get to cars. Uh, so you have been driving the, uh, the Hyundai Palisade. Yeah. So I had the, uh, the Palisade, um, all-wheel drive, 3.8, platinum, um, the high-end trim with every pretty much every available option on it. 
And as, as we've talked about before, you know, I had a chance to take a, a first drive in it last summer um, when Hyundai was doing a regional drive program around here. Spent a couple hours driving it, and it was really impressive. And I think, I think you've had it, and I know Rebecca's had it and talked about it. I actually don't think I have had it. Oh, you haven't, you haven't driven the, the Palisade I don't. Yet? I don't think I've had the Palisade. That's like the one that I haven't had. Okay. Well, it – you know, it, it's interesting, you know, it's come out this year, you know, roughly the same time as the new Ford Explorer, um, you know, just after the Kia Telluride, which, which it shares a platform with, um, you know, we've got the new um, Toyota Highlander that's just launched. So you've got all these, all these three row SUVs, you know, in this segment and, you know, fresh con fresh product in there. And, you know, this is, in a lot of ways, one of the best that's out there. It works really well. You know, it, it looks great. Um, it's very roomy. It feels, you know, inside, you know, it's, it's pretty close to the same size as the Explorer, but inside it feels, it feels more open, um, you know, and, and kind of feels a little wider. Uh, so you, you feel like you have more, more room to spread out than you do in the Explorer. Um, at least that's the perception of it you know i think you know dimensionally it's not that far off <clears throat> but it certainly feels uh roomier inside especially in the third row the third row uh is definitely roomier than in the explorer um but you know whereas the explorer went back to a rear drive platform this year the um, palisade is on a transverse engine front wheel drive platform uh, there's only one powertrain, the 3.8 liter Hyundai V6, which is a really good V6. Uh, don't get me wrong, you know, 300 and some horsepower, uh, 310, I think, or three, 315. Uh, you know, so it's it's totally competitive with anything else that's out there. Um, you know, I had the all-wheel drive Limited, uh, which is their top trim level, not Platinum. Um, sorry, it's 200, 291 horsepower, 282 pounds of torque yeah well that um it can be efficient too though i i remember that from the uh the uh telluride too it, it can do partial atkinson cycle or it can it can yeah it yeah it'll do uh, it can do some atkinson cycle uh effectively atkinson cycle control under certain modes because it's got variable valve phasing um you know so it's it at least you know in theory it, it's it can be very efficient I, you know, this being the first time that I've driven one for an extended period of time, I actually found it, found the fuel economy to be a little less impressive than I expected. It, you know, it's, it's officially rated with all wheel drive at uh, 21 miles per gallon combined. It's 19 city, 24 highway. I only got about 19 with it, you know, and I, I wasn't beating it up or anything. You know, it was, I was driving it, you know, modestly the way I do anything else. And usually I get, I managed to get pretty close to the, the label fuel economy number, but this one, um, you know, did, it did fall, fall a couple miles per gallon short, you know, and, you know, compared to the, the rest of the segment, you know, uh, you know, the Explorers rated it, uh, all wheel drive, uh, 2.3 liter Explorers rated at 23 combined, same for the Highlander with their V6. Um, and, you know, the one thing that Hyundai doesn't offer on this is a hybrid powertrain. You know, so among among the newer crop in this segment, uh, you know, the Ford and Toyota are both offering hybrid powertrains in here. Hyundai's not doing that, uh, and you know, I think if you're if you're looking for, you know, it's not that 19 is terrible for a three-row SUV, 
but it's, you know, in 2020, it's not that impressive either. Uh, you know, and I would think, you know, you should be able to do a little better than that. Yeah, that's kind of like where fuel economy for these have been stuck for decades, like just forever. You, yeah. you know that you're going to get about 20 miles to the gallon. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's good, know, a, but it's not. A, you know, a decade ago, you know, driving something like, you know, the first generation Chevy Traverse or, um, you know, the Explorer, you know, a decade ago, you know, 18, 19 miles per gallon was, you know, was about about what you were going to get. So it hasn't, hasn't really improved that much. I do expect, you know, that, you know, Hyundai has, you know, made it clear that they're going to be launching a bunch more electrified powertrains, whether or not the current generation Palisade is going to get a hybrid system in it at some point in its life cycle. I don't know. My, I guess it, I'm guessing it's probably not, but you know, some of their other smaller ones like, the uh, the upcoming uh, Tucson that's launching later this year, um, I would think the Santa Fe uh, will probably get a hybrid system in it, but I'm not sure about the Palisade. Well, now the Santa Fe and the Palisade they share a lot under the the skin, right? It's still a similar platform. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's similar, same architecture, uh, but the Palisade is is you know it's been stretched quite a bit. Uh, it's longer, wider than the Santa Fe, so um, you know it. it could get one the thing is you know up to this point um hyundai hasn't has only done their hybrid with their four-cylinder engines you know with the 1.6 liter or the two liter four-cylinder engines um and i'm not sure if that two liter hybrid combination is going to be enough for a vehicle the size of the palisade uh it you know if if they if they do a 2.5 liter with the hybrid system that that could be workable and that would certainly be competitive with the new Highlander, um, which also has a 2.5 liter four cylinder and hybrid. And that, you know, the Highlander hybrid is rated at 35 combined. So, yeah. Well, it's funny how we're like, we've made a lot of progress, but we're still at this point where the regular fuel economy of, of a crossover of this size is mediocre at best, which I, I think that's just, physics you can't really yeah. get around it and then um, you, got, you have to move two and a half tons you know yeah. it's going to take a certain amount of energy and uh and i remember those first uh you know like the first uh chevy traverse or the the lambdas um like the buick enclave um the, the fuel economy those they got was like 15 when they when we first got them in the fleets so we were all excited yeah. for them and it was just like oh my goodness that's bad but they're they're really heavy they were really heavy they've made a lot of improvements but you know, we're also looking at hybrid systems that seem to have a little trouble scaling, which is like, that was the thing way back when too, was it seems like Hyundai's hybrid system can't scale uh, like it would need to for a larger vehicle. Right. And I think, you know, that's part, I think that was part of Ford's rationale in going rear wheel drive with the new Explorer. I mean, among other things is, you know, they, they were developing a hybrid system for the F-150 and they did that when, you know, they designed it as a modular system that could slot into anything with rear wheel drive that they had because it was based around their new 10 speed automatic. Uh, hmm. And then they just slot in an electric motor in between the engine and the, tr and the torque converter. And, you know, they can scale, you know, they can scale up that motor to various sizes. So the one that's in the Explorer hybrid is, uh, I think it's a 44 horsepower motor. Um, and then, you know, for the, um, the aviator grand touring, the plug-in hybrid, 
it's a 96 horsepower version of that. So it's just a, a physically larger motor with more power and torque uh, to, for, for that particular application. And we'll see which, which one, we'll see in a couple of weeks, which one they use in the, um, uh, in the new F-150 hybrid. But, you know, it's based on that same architecture. But, it, you know, it's, it was specifically designed to scale to a, a variety of different applications. Yeah, well, and it seems like if you're doing a, you know, longitudinal layout, uh, it can handle that a little bit more gracefully because, you know, a larger motor is going to make the, it'll move the, where the engine is, right? Where if you're doing that in a transverse layout, you, you're, you're basically affecting the width of the, the package. Right. And it, it may, yeah, or may not fit. <laughs> yeah, you've got, you've got a little more packaging space to work with in that longitudinal configuration because, you, you know, all you're doing is maybe shifting the transmission back by a couple of inches. Yeah. Well, it's just went really geeky. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us some more about the Palisade though. Like it, the thing that I noticed about it, um, not having driven it, but just sort of comparing it with the, the Telluride, which I really, really liked was they seem to be two different flavors and both very distinct. They have different personalities, which is really interesting to me because they share so much. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the interior of the, the Palisade, you know, especially in the limited trim level that I had, <clears throat> you know, feels really upscale. You know, it's, it's really nicely executed, really nice materials. Um, you know, there, there's a little bit of, you know, fake wood trim on the dash, but it doesn't look, uh, you know, unlike, you know, we were talking last time about the Ultima, you know, where <laughs> it really doesn't look like real wood. You know, this, this looks a little more authentic. Um, and, the you know the instrument panel and center display you know spans across you know in one unit you know and you've got a full digital instrument cluster and then the touchscreen uh, off to the off to your right and it's a I think it's a ten and a half inch display uh, you know with a, a new a new interface but it's you know it's still uh, you know at, it's different from uh, the Hyundai's of the past five or six years but it's still pretty easy to use. They uh, even the built-in voice recognition works really well. It's you know it's it's pretty robust. Um, one of the the cool features that they uh, that they have on uh, they actually have it on a number of Hyundai models now, Hyundai and Kia models, is the, uh, using the side cameras that are on the underside of the mirrors for um, to give you a, a view similar to what Hondas had with their Lane Watch system. Um, you know, and it's not, we have it on our Civic, uh, but Honda only has it on the passenger side. So when you put on the turn signal, the right turn signal, uh, it shows you the view from that camera of what's on your right-hand side, which, you know, if you're turning right is usually just the curb. Um, so it's not really all that useful most of the time. And, and it's, it shows up in the, the center display, which means that to see it, you've got to look over at the center screen um, you know, and if you're going to do that, you might as well just look at the mirror. What Hyundai's doing is they're actually showing that display in the digital instrument cluster. So the the the, st the standard configuration in the the digital cluster is the speedometer on the right, tachometer on the left. Um, when you put on the turn signal, it'll show you um, the view from either camera in the corresponding circle. So when you turn on the when you put turn signal onto the left. It shows you the view from the camera in the speedometer uh, display, in the center of the speedometer display, or you know, the, to the right, it shows it in the tack display. <clears throat> and then 
uh, you know, so you basically kind of have a, a, a duplicate of what you're seeing in the mirrors, but it's always properly aimed. And it's, it's not there all the time. It's only, you know, to, you know, to give you a quick check of your blind spot um, when you're changing lanes or, or turning. So, you know, I think this, the system works really well. On the Telluride, um, they have that system, but because the Telluride doesn't have the full digital cluster, it only has uh, the, it has the analog gauges and then the, the display in between those. It actually shows you both the left and right in that central display uh, in between the two gauges. Uh, whereas this shows it on, you know, in separately on either side. So it kind of ties in a little better and you know, you know, what, when you glance down, you know, which one you're looking at. Yeah. I, the Sonata hybrid that I had um, the last show did that as yeah. well. And it was, I, it's better than the Honda lane watch system, but it's still to me after having spent a few decades driving with mirrors, it just doesn't feel right. Um, I, I guess there's probably drivers that aren't checking their mirrors and don't have their mirrors set well anyway. So it probably can't hurt for them, but it's still, it still feels weird. I like the way Hyundai did it a little better, but it's still to me, like I, I want to be looking at that mirror or not at the, you yeah. And, and I, you know, I do too. I, I glance over, you know, I have that muscle memory of, you know, when I tap the turn signal lever, I look over to one side or the other to the, to the mirrors and, and, you know, quick glance over my shoulder or my peripheral vision uh, before I make a move one way or the other. But, you know, as you've, as anybody that's driven on American roads knows there's a lot of drivers that don't look. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if it's, it if it's right, if it's right in front of them, you know, then it's better than nothing. Yeah. And it's quicker. It's quicker. I think than lane yeah. watch lane watch the problem. One of the oh, big yeah. issues was there's just a sort of display for it to like finally get around to popping the thing up and you'd already have made your change. Yeah, exactly. Um, where this, this seems to just, just react a little quicker. And the, that digital cluster is really nice in the Sonata. I'm sure it's very similar. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the, the same. Display. It's the same. It's the same cluster display. It's the same hardware. Um, and largely the same um, interface, you know, same, same graphics on there. Yeah, that's one of the things that Hyundai continues to do really well. And uh, I almost would pick their cars over some of their competition because they're just easy to operate. Even with the, the infotainment and stuff, um, it, it just, it, it, you can get in, you can figure it out. They've got the right amount of redundant controls for the most part. Um, and it, it, it just all really is, you don't need to crack the manual for most stuff. Uh, it just works. And that's, that's actually pretty hard to do. And, and so they've been, they've been putting in the effort to make that happen. And it makes the experience a lot better. No, it's, that's absolutely true. And, you know, between the, the good um, user experience of the way you interact with the vehicle and, you know, just the way it looks and feels around you, you know, it, it feels very, you know, it, it, it feels very high quality and, you know, it is, but you know, the, the perception you get sitting in it, it feels like a more expensive vehicle than it is. And, you know, certainly at, at $47,000, it's not, it's not cheap, but, you know, you can easily spend a lot more on an SUV and not have something that feels as premium as this does. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting trick. You know, some of it is sleight of hand, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's just, 
picking the right patterns and colors and textures and arranging them properly. So it doesn't actually have to be expensive to look expensive or, or it, you know, it doesn't have to be as expensive as it looks. Um, but they're really, really good at it. <laughs> well, and it's, you know, it's, it's also a matter of, you know, how you put it together, where, you know, the way you design it, you know, with where the seams are, you yep. know, where, where parts join up to each other. And, you know, again, this goes back to what I was talking about last time with the Ultima, you know, the, the trim, the plastic trim around the uh, center touchscreen display in the Ultima is it's right there in your face. You know, you've got these, these two halves, you know, there's this, there's a seam that separates the two halves of this kind of shell, you know, around the base of that screen that sits, stands up on the middle of the dash. And it looks so out of place there. You know, it, it, it just, it grabs your attention. The first time you glance at it, it grabs your attention and you realize how cheap it looks compared to a lot of other elements of the interior. And, you know, a Hyundai has done a really good job of avoiding that sort of thing of not having, uh, and a lot of manufa manufacturers are increasingly doing that of, you know, getting the pieces lined up in a way that you don't see those seams or they're, 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 they're not as obvious. And, uh, you know, the, the pieces that are hard plastics, you know, are down below the dashboard where you're not going to see them, you know, down, down by your knees. Uh, so, you know, the, the pieces that you see and touch 99% of the time are the ones that feel really good and look really good. Yeah. And it's always a struggle. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Nissan just had a little, uh, meeting for us, um, here in new England and, and they had one of the designers, um, from their, uh, their La Jolla, uh, studio they had here in Patel. Uh, talk to us and I, I guess he's the lead designer but we, that was one of my questions was how do you figure that out because it doesn't have to necessarily cost more to look like it costs more it doesn't have to um, be expensive to just pay attention and, and work with the you know the production side of things so um, they can understand what you're trying to do and say so, you know if you had the gaps here or there or, or you know made this one piece instead of two and, and I'm sure there's all that back and forth and that's what he said was like look everything's a fight on every car and you know, some you win, some you don't. <laughs> um, and they, they're always like, you know, they're always sort of getting buy-in from, from other disciplines and uh, some, some stuff just happens that way. Yeah. So it's, it's well, you know, and the other aspect of that is it also has, you, you have to be able to build it. Yeah. You know, it's, right. it's not, it's not as simple as just designing it in a certain way, but you actually have to design it so that you can, put it together in the factory. Right. And, and like there's things like cycle times and stuff mm -hmm. that come into it. Like, he, he, yeah, if it takes 10 minutes to put that one piece in, like, no, <laughs> that's not going to work. <laughs> so um, the, the Hyundai though, like the thing that I, I think you could, you could take from, especially the, the Palisade, but most of their lineup, it's almost like a little masterclass in the importance of design uh, and how it shapes perception because you look at the Palisade and it's, you know, it's basically a minivan. It's front wheel drive based. It's, uh, it's a crossover, but it looks more like a Tahoe 
yeah. <laughs> in some ways. You know, it's got that, there's that idea of the premium gap, right? With the, where the, the way the stance is, it doesn't, doesn't really have front wheel drive proportions that they've pushed the wheels out a bit. Um, it just has that, that more SU, traditional SUV stance, uh, the clean lines on the body, um, give it that perception, I think of, of, of premium and, and the way they've surfaced it, you know, it's, it's spare, it's not gimmicky. Uh, whereas you compare it to something like the, um, the Highlander, the Highlander, it looks to me, it looks good, but there was a lot of complaining yeah. <laughs> when that, when that, uh, debuted a, a few weeks ago. And the, you know, the trim choices are, are pretty understated. And then inside it's the same thing. It's just, um, you know, just the way they've, they've, you were talking about how wide it feels, you know? And so they, they, I'm assuming they probably emphasize the horizontal aspect. So it feels wider because there's a lot of horizontal lines versus the Ford that may have more vertical elements to, to sort of box you in. And, and that's uh, coming from the creative side of things. That's the fascinating part is how it messes with people's heads. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you create, you create these optical illusions that, you know, something, you know, if you took, take a measuring tape to it, it's not any different, but when you sit in it, you know, it, the impression that it creates is completely different. And speaking yeah. of you know, impressions, you know, I talked about the, you know, the, the infotainment interface and, you know, this is another area where, where Hyundai did it right. You know, with, they've got the same size screen that uh, Ford has in the Explorer and the, the premium Explorers with a 10 inch screen. But Ford, you know, decided, you know, to, when they, at some point, you know, it almost feels like it was an afterthought. You know, they decided to add the 10 inch screen, um, but they, it had to fit in the same space between the vents on the dashboard as the eight inch screen. And so the, the base eight inch screen setup is a, a landscape display. The 10 inch is a, a portrait display. And they did kind of a, a half-assed job on reconfiguring the sync three interface for this bigger display for this reoriented display because it was the sync three was designed for a portrait style display and you know on the 10 inch portrait display you know there's a lot of wasted space that doesn't you know they, they didn't reconfigure everything properly on that one and you know fortunately from what i've seen so far with sync four you know, they've, they've addressed that because they, they right up front, they knew they were going to do both portrait and landscape displays, but you know, it's, it's another, it's another thing where there's a, this detail that Ford kind of missed out on with the Explorer that, you know, Hyundai didn't have to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, the, the Explorer is an interesting case because, uh, they they sort of like fumbled <laughs> that launch. I feel it's just too bad because yeah. it, it looks good and and by all accounts it, they'll they'll you know they'll smooth it out. But uh, it's a little disappointing in how it was executed when it was sort of getting out of the gate. Um, well, speaking of the Explorer, there was um, <clears throat> Jim Farley and Jim Hackett did um, a talk this week at uh, a Deutsche Bank conference and uh, the web you know it's available as a webcast the replay of, of the presentation is available online i'll i'll drop a link to it in the show notes but um farley talked about the explorer launch in, in the q a you know he was asked about that or actually even in the in the main presentation before he was asked about it you know he talked about you know with the explorer he acknowledged that they made a lot of mistakes with the explorer launch um you know and you know he he said, you know, it's because they, they had to completely gut the plant, the Chicago assembly plant and reconfigure it all to build this thing because previously they were building the old 
front wheel drive based Explorer and the Taurus there. And, you know, so they had a completely new architecture here. So they, they completely redid the assembly line and that they made a lot of mistakes there and that's what caused them problems. Um, you know, and he talked about, you know, they're, they're about to launch the new F-150 um, this summer and, you know, they've already launched the, the Escape. Um, you know, and he said, you know, for the F-150, you know, because they already went through that process of completely rebuilding the plant with the, in 2015 or 2014, when they launched the current generation and the new one, it's going to be, it, it's going to be a lot smoother transition into this new generation. Yeah. It's still surprising though, when a company that's been at it for so long, like Ford, I know it's a big change and it's, it's significant. It's a completely different architecture and, and all that, but you'd think that they would have it down. You, you would think you'd so, think. but yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, certainly Tesla is not the only one that can screw up a production launch. You know, every yeah. manufacturer has done it at some point in time. Yeah, well, and, and I'm, it's refreshing that they're that forthright about it. Uh, yeah, I was surprised he talked about it to that to the degree that he did. I, I like Jim. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Um, all right, well, so in my driveway, uh, until they came and took it, um, was the 2020 Infiniti QX50 Autograph all-wheel drive, which was a real bit of um, just really uh, the, the cosmos coming together for us. Because the last episode um, we had, we were talking about the, the Nissan Infiniti uh, VCT 2-liter four-cylinder um, that you had in the, the Altima. And I remember saying, well, I'll have to pay more attention uh, to how smooth it is because you're you seemed to to think that it was it was one of the smoother four cylinders on the market, and that was one of the things that um, Nissan was saying too was the the design of that engine because of the extra elements in there actually smooths it out uh, without needing balance shafts. So somebody listened. <laughs> so what did you think? Uh, yes, the engine is is smooth in terms of um, vibration. It it makes good power. It doesn't shake the car. I think what for me gets a, a little bit sideways there is the engine note is not the most refined. There are other fours that, that sound better. I know it's kind of a picky thing um, and maybe I'm being hard on it, uh, but it's still a little bit raspy. Um, it's not really a car. This isn't a car for you if you are buying it for the sound of the engine at you know like forty five hundred RPM though. <laughs> that's not that's not what the QX fifty is for. Um, you know so the, and the power is good. Um, it it's uh, it's a nice it's a really neat piece of engineering. Uh, driving it, I felt like it was a little bit disappointing. So when you had it in the Ultimate, did you have it with a CVT or do they have a yeah. conventional? Okay, no, so. CVT. So that's, I think, what makes the engine sort of feel like it's on its own little island. Um, the, it's fine around town, you know, and at speed, once you get to speed, it's fine. You know, no gear changes, which is probably the right uh, decision for the, the character of this car in particular. But also, you know, it's an, another thing that they can say with the Altima is, hey, isn't it really smooth? You don't feel that jerking from gear changes. And that's true. Um, when you need the power, it does that sort of, motor boating thing that CVTs will do. And it's like double rubber bandy because 
you know, you've got, it has to build boost, which is pretty quick about, but it also has to get to the right ratio. And those things never seem to just happen exactly when you want them. And that's not really a big deal. I think for the people who are going to buy it, because they're not going to drive it that way, but uh, you know, it, it feels like a lot of tech (laughs) that's wasted um, that goes, because it goes through a transmission that just doesn't care. Uh, And I I have to back up a little bit. And when I'm thinking about it and say, look, the point here was not to make a performance engine. It was to make an engine that is lighter and more compact than the VQ, which is the only other engine they have, right? It's the the V6, which is it's an old design. It's it's good in some ways. I really like the VQ, but that's also not a refined sounding engine. It's thirsty. And I'm sure it's hard to clean up the emissions compared to a newer design. Like there's a lot of reasons to go with a newer engine, and rather than do a harder to package V6, hey guys, we can do a four cylinder. We can dial the power up and down with software and boost. Uh, it fits a lot of places across however you know many platforms they've got or, or just you know in a lot of different engine rooms um, that make it harder. I think when you're designing for for multiple engines and and the, the the weight of it helps out helps them make other pieces around it lighter. So there's the reason for this engine is to replace the VQ. It's not to excite the enthusiast. Although I really want to try it in, in the new Z if that's what they wind up doing. Cause I, I think it will be wonderful with either a, you know, step ratio automatic or a manual transmission behind it. Yeah. It, it, it could be really interesting. I, I don't know if they'll do it with, with a manual. Um, in fact, I would, at this point, I'd be surprised if they do another manual, uh, but a step ratio automatic or, <clears throat> or a DCT, yeah. I think is, is definitely a possibility. Um, you know, and they could potentially use, um, you know, maybe a version of the DCT from the GTR um, or, you know, there's other DCTs out there on the market that they could use. Um, but that, that would be a, a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing to try out because you've got, you know, similar power to the VQ, but, you know, in a very different kind of package. Yeah. And I, I honestly, like, I came to that realization. I was like, hang on a second. I'm, I'm going about this opinion wrong. <laughs> It's just like, it's, it's there to make X amount of, of kilowatts really. And, and just provide the power. Um, It's not, it's not there for excitement. It's not, it's not there for, for any of those visceral things that we care about. It's there because it's a smaller, more efficient way to make the same amount of, of energy um, for the drivetrain. So with that in mind, I, it's fine. You know, the, the, um, the QX50 is, I'm trying to think now because it's the, the model name, the model itself, it's is now in the second generation, but the, the QX moniker started off as the EX, right? It was the EX35 and then the EX. Yeah, it was whatever. EX35 uh, yeah, or was it EX30? I think it might've been EX30 originally. I think oh, it was it a three liter back, back when I first did, a review of it for Autoblog back in 2009-ish, I think, 2008 or nine. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think it was EX30. That was a long time ago now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, you know, that, that first generation one was, a, I mean, it had a long product run. It know, did. 
and it, and it changed pretty significantly, you know, partway when they did their mid-cycle refresh, they actually, it was a pretty substantial update because they actually stretched the wheelbase by about three inches. And they made yeah, it, which made it longer. Made it, yeah, it made it much better. And, and so that's, that, that one had a lot of character because it was based on the G35, G37, you know, the FM mm-hmm. sedan and coupe. Uh, it, that made it also not all that space efficient, not all that fuel efficient. So it, it had character and it felt luxurious and it felt sporty, but it couldn't hold that much. Yep. <laughs> and it, it didn't go that far uh, on a tank of gas. And, and it was maybe a little bit more toward the side that would please enthusiasts, but, but sort of put off uh, the luxury buyers. So I think they've made the right decisions going with a, a front wheel drive transverse architecture. Um, it looks good on the outside, you know, it's, it's restrained and handsome and infinity does beautiful interiors. And this one being the autograph trim, uh, it's really, really nice inside. Uh, it's a, a nice combo of tan and brown leather and just nice materials everywhere you looked, uh, very comfortable, um, the has has a newer infotainment which i think probably shares a lot with what was in the ultima um the the touch screen it's not a huge touch screen but it's it's not the quaint um nissan system that we've had we had for a very long time as well with <laughs> the old windows you know 3.1 graphics and, mm-hmm. and a little yeah. rotary controller that, that system actually worked and it was really friendly um this system it's pretty easy to use. The touchscreen's a little sluggish. It's a little clunky. Um, and it's a shiny plastic uh, cover. So I just wonder how long that's going to hold up. But it's it's not bad. It's not real obtuse. Uh, the voice recognition, I tried it because Rebecca always asks me, um, it, did you try the voice recognition? So I, I did. I tried it and it, it couldn't find the road I was looking for. <laughs> so uh, it couldn't understand me, I guess. So I I have to give it a demerit for that. Um, you know, Infinity has. It's got the the it's got the dual screen setup, doesn't it? Uh, hmm. I'm trying to remember. Um. Yeah, I'm 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 looking at it right now. It's it's got dual touch screens. So there's there's one above which is primarily for the for the nav system, and then the one below that has you know it's mainly for the entertainment media and, and other controls. Um, okay. I'm, I'm trying to think cause it's like none of it felt clunky though. Like it, okay. Yes. Uh, it did have the dual screens, um, but it didn't like that didn't bug me strangely enough um, where in, in other cars it, it does get kind of aggravating that that didn't actually bother me. To the point where I'm, you know, like I had to go look at a picture to remember. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not as bad as the setup that Acura had for many years. It it definitely works better than oh, that one. Yeah, the Acura setup you couldn't figure out how to use. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, wait, this one is a touchscreen. Yeah, no, this, that one's not. This one, <laughs> like, you know, this one. At least the the Infinity system, you know, is fairly easily, you know, or logically configured, you know, with you know the the maps and stuff that are all on the upper screen, you know, where it's closer to line of sight and, you know, other stuff, climate controls and, and uh, radio and everything are in the lower screen. Yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't hate any of it. It all actually worked um, 
pretty well. And uh, the the touch targets are a decent size on that lower screen and there's enough physical controls and stuff. So they've done a lot of the ergonomics, right? Which is always like, it always makes you a little scared when they, they do a complete redo and, and get creative yeah. <laughs> things. Um, but they've, they've done a really nice job and, and I've just, I really love the aesthetic inside. It's, it's, um, it's their designers are, are doing a nice job with, with infinity in particular that the design has always been really good with the brand and uh, it, it shows here just, it feels nice and it, it, it looks good. And they have some, some things that are unique to the brand, like the silvery wood trim. I remember back a ways now where they, they, they brought out it a little more subtle, but it was in one of the, the M I think sedans, they had like flecks of silver in the, the, the wood. It was more of like a traditional wood grain for this, this is like open pour kind of, uh, stuff, but it's just things like that where they they do pay attention to those details, and that's what you expect in a luxury car, and and so it gives you that that sort of feeling like um, it's not just a Nissan with a, a fancier badge. Um, and I think this actually may be a Mercedes, right? This is the one that they share with Mercedes. No, that was the QX30. Oh, okay. That was the yeah, little see, one. Get, it was based on the GLA. Um, but it, you know, and also like this this goes down the road nicely. The thing that I I guess I wish they would figure out a little better is infinity has this, this feeling, this desire, I guess, to push the envelope technically. Uh, and, and with, with things that not every other manufacturer is really after right now, like the steer by wire is my biggest complaint. Uh, and I had this, I had the QX a while ago back in March or February and it was the same thing. And I had it during like a, a rainstorm at night and just, trying to feel what the hell kind of traction I had or, you know, where the lane was. I hated that. I hated it to just like, I was like, I cannot wait to be out of this car um, in these conditions. And it still feels really, really numb. And I don't know how you get around that with steer by wire. Uh, it just, it, it's so, um, so artificial that it's, it, it's really hard to tell what's going on with the tires. And I feel like that, that actually, um, even for the like regular driver, that is an issue because you're not going to know what what kind of grip you have and and what's actually going on. It's just too too much like a video game. Um, the other stuff, feel, you know, seems seems okay, but that that particular bit of of steer by wire just that kills the whole thing for me. The rest of it, I love it otherwise, but it it needs to not have steer by wire. Yeah, I I think you know as long as we still have to actually drive the vehicles, you know. It, it's probably better to stay with mechanical systems for stuff like that. Yeah. Like, or you know, some even, other way. Even, even, you know, even a lot of cars that have mechanical steering, you know, still don't have the greatest steering feel. Um, you know, and look at a lot of recent BMWs. So yeah. <laughs> you know, no, no guarantee that actually having a physical connection there is, is actually going to be much better. Yeah. I, I don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, a physical connection and I, I know that it's it's really hard to do this stuff so later generations of it are going to get better but it just um it's funny how subtle it is like even with that bad steering say in, in one of the, the the three series uh it's still better than having nothing <laughs> you yeah. know? like so it's 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 a weird subtle thing so they'll zero in on it they'll get there um the other thing I, I sort of thought about as I was driving this was uh, instead of the, the VCT engine, 
I'm I'm curious why Infinity hasn't considered going hybrid. This seems like a uh, just the right product to go hybrid with in in that market. Um, you know, you can certainly get the performance out of a hybrid setup. Uh, I think a PHEV would would really really be a good move. It's the right size. It's it's just lovely. It's, it's you know it's a premium product, and you know premium hybrid buyers are there in the CUV market. And it's not like the engine was cheap to do either. Uh, so maybe a hybrid would be financially about the same. I don't know, but and maybe they just don't have a hybrid to put into it. But I really felt like as fun as this is with this engine or as, as good power as this engine makes, like I feel like they could have gotten that same kind of oomph out of, out of uh, electrification. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I think Nissan for whatever reason has seems to have had a hard time committing to, um, you know, to, to hybrids um, in, in any form, you know, each time that they've launched one, you know, it hasn't been very long lived. Uh, you know, they had one for a while in the rogue, uh, they had one for a while in the uh, in the Pathfinder, um, and you know back back in the day they uh, they actually licensed Toyota's hybrid system for the Altima for a couple of years and then discontinued that. Um, and you know I think next next episode we'll talk more about that stuff I can't talk about yet. Okay. <laughs> um, it's under embargo for now, uh, but yeah, I mean N- Nissan seems to have a. A, a real love hate relationship with hybrids. Um, but you know, this, they, they have said that they're going to launch uh, infinity models with their e-power system, which is actually a series hybrid system. Uh, you know, so they, they refer to that as an electric powertrain that you never have to plug in. Um, you know, and that one's got uh, in the versions they have in, uh, in the Japanese market today, you know, their lower power versions uh, where you have, an electric motor uh, that powers the um, powers the wheels, and then a relatively small battery and an engine that runs a generator. You know, so there's no mechanical connection between the engine and the wheels at all. The engine is just charging the battery, and then um, then the the thing runs on electricity. So, you know, that's coming. I believe they're going to launch their first. Infinity e-power pl- uh, model in 2021, but you know this, you know the QX50 would, you know, in the segment it's in, you know this premium, you know midsize crossover segment, you know against the likes of, you know certainly the the Lexus RX and the, um, you know some of the Germans, you know you've got the uh, Audi Q5 and the BMW uh, X3, you know those have plug-in hybrid uh, options available to them. It would seem like a logical option in this kind of vehicle, but you know, for some reason, Infinity has chosen not to do it. Yeah, it's surprising because it's not like it's cheap. You know, it was $59,000. Um, yeah. So I can't imagine that you couldn't find some way. And they're, they're charging you, right, for that, that VCT engine. So I can't imagine that they can't make the numbers work for a hybrid. Well, I can, I can actually imagine that a hybrid would still be more expensive than the engine with the, the batteries. And, not, and not necessarily. I mean, if you're talking about a regular, a non-plug-in hybrid, you know, the, the cost premium for those has come down quite a bit. You know, it's, you know, it's probably um, somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000 now. 
uh, at, you know, manufacturing cost premium. And, you know, that's, you know, you're probably looking pretty close to that to do that VCT engine compared to a conventional four cylinder. Yeah. And it's sort of just, I guess it's two different approaches. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and it would, it would allow them to sort of bump their fuel economy, which isn't great either. It's, you know, 25 combined. Um, that to me, this is kind of a small vehicle to get mileage that low, uh, these days, everything seems a, a bit more efficient. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's a nice place to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if they, if you're not driving it at night in the rain with no steering feel, um, <laughs> so it, it's got some things to work on. It's a, it's a good choice. It feels solid otherwise. And, and it's, uh, it's comfy and handsome and, uh, yeah, it's, so it, it's a contender. At least it has some things that are unique about it. That's nice. It's not, not totally nondescript. Um, but I, I, uh, I do find some of the choices curious. But, uh, you know, they give some, give some areas of improvement, right? They'll do it like, a, yeah. like an employee review. Like, <laughs> these are the things you need to work on. We can stick with hybrids because Ford just announced the uh, fuel or the, the the mileage, the electric only mileage numbers for their escape PHEV. And I, I, we knew this was coming, but we didn't know it was going to do 37 miles on a charge, right? Yeah, they had indicated, um, you know, when they first launched the escape uh, la- uh, uh, just over a year ago when they did the reveal of the escape and told us about the plug-in that um, it would be doing somewhere, you know, at least 30 miles of range. And that's in part, you know, driven by, you know, the fact that they sell, versions of this vehicle as the the Kuga in Europe and in China and you know to get the most uh, you know a lot of the incentives uh, especially in China are you know you, there's a threshold of you know getting at least 30 miles of electric range uh, in order to get some of those uh, some of the, the maximum incentives on this thing and so they ended up at, at 37 miles of electric range from a 14.4 kilowatt hour battery and 100 miles per gallon equivalent, you know, in the overall combined driving cycle, which, um, you know, that range is a little bit less than what Toyota has been promising for the RAV4 Prime, their, their plug-in hybrid. Uh, but the efficiency is a little bit better. Uh, so Toyota is projecting 42 miles and 94 MPGE. Uh, so, you know, we're not sure, you know, Toyota hasn't revealed any, any other details about the, the RAV4 plug-in, um, you know, as far as battery size or anything. So it may well have a, a larger battery than the Escape does. Um, but, you know, either way, I mean, it, you know, this 37 miles of electric range is great uh, for this thing. You know, it's, that's, you know, that's, an, that's, an, that's, more, that's better range than the first generation Chevy Volt got when it launched a decade ago. That one only got 35 miles. So you're getting 37 miles in a much more usable package. You know, the battery, you know, mo- modern batteries, you know, are, you know, much more compact. They're, much, you know, better energy density than they, than they were in the past. So the whole battery pack fits under the rear seat. Um, but unfortunately, that also means that um, the, you know, that it blocks off the passage where uh, a drive shaft would go for, rear, for all-wheel drive. Uh, so you can only get the, the escape plug-in with front-wheel drive. Um, the, when the Corsair plug-in uh, launches later this year, 
it's going to have all-wheel drive, but with an electric motor on the rear, which is the same as what Toyota does on the Rav Four. Well, I mean, you gotta you gotta you know keep those things distinct so you can have something just different for that brand, right? <laughs> oh yeah, no, absolutely. You know, but so for you know anybody that that wants an all-wheel drive plug-in crossover, you know, the Escape is not going to be the one for you, unfortunately. Um, but you know, the the other thing is the um, the Escape. You know, is going to be significantly cheaper than the RAV. Um, the, the Escape plug-in starts at thirty, just over thirty-three thousand, and it's eligible for uh, about I think it's about a sixty-four hundred dollar federal tax credit uh, because of the size of the battery. So you know you're going to be looking, you know, starting price, you know, effective starting price somewhere around twenty-seven thousand for the Escape plug-in hybrid, and you know, thirty-seven miles of range is going to be enough for most people to do pretty much all their regular driving without using any gas. Yeah. No, I mean, especially with regular driving now, which well, like, yeah. I've, I filled up once in the last four months. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, even, you know, under more normal circumstances, you know, it's still, it's still going to be uh, plenty of electric range for most people. And, you know, you plug it in when you come home at night, unplug it in the morning and you, you know when you're driving around during the day, you don't have to worry about unlike with a, a a battery electric vehicle, you don't have to you know perhaps worry about you know finding a place to charge during the day, um, you know, or if you want to take a road trip, you know, with the family, you know, you don't have to necessarily plan for where you're going to stop, you know, for charges along the way. You can just just uh, keep driving it just like a regular hybrid. Yeah, well, that's one of the things. You know, range anxiety isn't so much a thing anymore. Um, but it, it still factors in when you're, especially when you're considering the purchase of a single vehicle to do it all. And certainly the Escape is in that class where it, it will be the family vehicle. It will have to do it all. Uh, you know, you think about the same way that the, the RAV4 does, you know, it's, that is the new family wagon. And so yeah. um, to be able to do it all sort of gracefully and not, not run out of juice is really important in that, that segment. So that, that's still an area where there is some range anxiety because um, they're not, you know, they're not true believers. They're not early adopters, but at this point they're, they're people that, you know, would, would be happy to spend a little bit extra and be able to cover um, most of their driving on a daily basis with, with electric um, instead of using gas. So it, it seems like a good move. Uh, and the, I'm surprised at the price because the, the last escape I had, uh, I was surprised in a bad way. It seemed expensive and um, it actually seems a little tighter in terms of space, but maybe that's again, the design stuff tricking us. Like how does it actually sort of fit in that, that segment? I really feel like the RAV4 is, is the, the, the king <laughs> um, in terms of just space, size, utility, all, all of those things. That, that's a they're, really, really They're actually, you know, their dimensions are almost exactly the same. Are they really? The See, the Ford yeah. feels tighter. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, it, I haven't driven the Escape since last summer, so it's, I have to go back and remember. But, you know, it, it didn't seem to be that much different to me. Um, but, you know, price-wise, you know, the uh, the – the the SE plug-in hybrid starts at just over 33 and then there's all you can also get the SEL and the titanium and yeah. the titanium is uh about 39,000 right. but the thing is you know that SE um you know with that $6400 tax credit 
you know, that brings it down to about 27, which actually makes it cheaper than the SE hybrid, the regular hybrid SE, which is 28. So it's, it's about a thousand dollars less. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you buy one of these, you know, in the next year or so, um, you'll still be able to get that credit, you know, probably by sometime around the middle of 2021, Ford will have uh, hit the 200,000 mark and they'll be phasing out their tax credits. But, but at least for now, you can still get that. And, you know, that really makes it a, a good deal. Yeah. And I guess you, you have nowhere to go if you want all-wheel drive. So you do have to leave yeah, Ford um, for, unless for you that, want to go to Lincoln. Yeah. For that, so. you'll, have, you'll have to go to Toyota for the RAV4, which is going to start at about 38 and a half. Yeah, so it's a couple grand more for the. Yeah, it's um, a, it's about a five thousand dollar price difference for the the minimum price. That's the, yeah, that's that's true. Um, but the you know the Rav will also have a tax credit available on it as well, uh, which would bring it down to about thirty two. Yeah, it's a competitive market. It is very competitive. <laughs> yeah, and then you got you know you got the CRV hybrid that Rebecca drove last time, you know which they don't have a plug in version of that yet, but uh, just the just the regular hybrid. But yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of hybrids and, you know, as I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Nissan and hybrids, you know, I'll have more to say about that next week. Let's see what you have to say about uh, Nikola Motors. <laughs> uh, the, the, the best takes I saw um, were you know, Patrick George um, summed it up really nicely. Uh, he said that they don't make anything. <laughs> <laughs> They have no profit <laughs> and yet they're valued more than the, you know, more than general motors, uh, which makes absolutely no sense. Although there, there is nothing about the stock market today that makes any sense whatsoever. And that's, in, in that's any absolutely way. true. In, um, yeah. And Nicholas seems to have like we, and we had talked about them a little bit uh, a few weeks ago or a few shows ago because they, they had the pickup that seemed really promising. Um, and they're sort of working in uh, long haul trucking or, or, you know, heavy trucks, which is really, I think the, the, the place where you're, you're going to find a lot of adoption and an actual, like you probably have an actual road to profitability there if you can do it well versus, you know, selling fancy electric cars to wealthy people. But. Yeah, you know, the so Nikola when they first came out a few years ago when they first became public, you know, they announced uh, a long haul truck, you know, an electric long haul truck, and this was before Tesla uh, revealed the semi. Um, the difference between what Nikola is doing and <laughs> there's so much about what Nikola is doing. This the same, you know, it's copying the Tesla playbook, including the name, you know, where Tesla chose <laughs> the guy, the inventor's last name, you know, Nikola went for his first name, Nikola Tesla. Um, so, you know, not coincidental with the naming and increasingly it seems like Trevor Milton, their, their founder and now former CEO, he's, he's now the chairman. He's, they brought in another CEO. Um, you know, he seems like he, he's, wants to be like Elon, even on Twitter. Uh, but, you know, what Nikola, you know, came up, came to market wanting to do, I thought actually made a lot more sense than what Tesla is trying to do with the semi, you know, using fuel cells, but, you know, um, you know, cause hydrogen fuel cells, you know, for the kind of range that you need for, for a long haul truck, it's going to weigh probably about 10,000 pounds less than the batteries that you need to do the same kind of range 
for, you know, for the Tesla semi. Um, and when you're talking about a truck, you know, where you're weight limited to 80,000 pounds in, in most places, uh, you know, that 10,000 pounds, that extra 10,000 pounds that you're not wasting on batteries, that can go into payload that generates revenue. Um, so that's, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, when you need to refuel, you can refuel that thing in just a few minutes, you know, whereas, you know, to, to do what Tesla is claiming with refueling the semi, uh, you know, 80% charge in 30 minutes would require about a, a 1.6 uh, or one, one megawatt charger, which is, you know, about four times more power than what you have today from the fastest supercharger. One megawatt charger. One, one megawatt charger. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and you know those those don't exist anywhere today. So no, I mean, how are you gonna? What is the electrical like? I can just imagine the size of the cable you're gonna yeah. need for this thing, and the cooling for that cable. Oh, to, and to what's the that. transmission like? The electrical transmission requirements. So you've got a, a station with five of those, yeah. five so, megawatts. Like what? So you know the the obvious question with Nikola is well, there aren't any hydrogen fueling stations in the middle of the country for long haul trucks either. Nikola is addressing that by they're building out a network of hydrogen stations across, you know, most of the major corridors across the country where most of the long haul trucking takes place. And um, what they're doing is, you know, today, you know, the hydrogen stations that are in California for cars like the Toyota Mirai and the Honda Clarity and the Hyundai Nexo uh, for, for those, you know, they have, fairly limited number of cars that actually use those. So they actually bring in the hydrogen by truck and, you know, put it into a storage tank at, on site. That's not going to be practical, you know, when you're talking about, you know, taking it out to Kansas or Nebraska, you're not going to truck out hydrogen from refineries out to those locations. So they're actually going to be producing hydrogen on site um, uh, from, you know, using water and electrolysis and using um, primarily renewable uh, electricity to do the electrolysis, so hydro, uh, solar and wind power, and they've, you know, they're they're working with some partners. They've they've ordered the equipment for the electrolyzers to to do the hydrogen production, uh, so they'll be able to support you know these trucks in the environment where they're going to be used. All good. They haven't actually done any of that yet. Okay. <laughs> we intend the, to. <laughs> the, 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 truck, the trucks, the hydrogen trucks are supposed to get hit production about 2022, 2023. Yeah. And the, the hydrogen stations are supposed to obviously need to be ready by then. Um, but right now, Nikola has a valuation of $30 billion and $0 in revenue. Okay. The other thing that got people all excited, um, you know, the past week, was you know news of the Badger, which is their pickup right. truck, you know, which looks really cool. Actually, you know, it looks it looks much more like a traditional pickup truck than the uh, the Tesla Cybertruck. And you know, as a truck, it would actually be probably a lot more useful than a Cybertruck. Yeah. That said, the you know the Cybertruck, you can at least plug it in and charge it. The Badger is supposed to use the same fuel cell technology that they're using for the, the long haul trucks. And, you know, think about where most pickup trucks are sold, you know, places like Texas and Oklahoma, you know, these are not going to be long haul, you know, drivers, you know, these, these need, you know, need to be, they're going to be sold where people use pickup trucks, where if you're not in California, 
there's no hydrogen stations. Right. And, you know, unless you live close to one of these hydrogen stations that they're going to build on some interstates, this, this truck makes zero sense right now. Well, so it's always an interesting bit of like cart and horse. Um, you know, Tesla had to deal with some of the same stuff when they hit the market. And that's why they invested so much in their supercharger network. You know, that was, I think that's one of the key things that uh, as much as we bitch about Tesla, they actually did a really smart thing where they, they gave you the car and then they also gave you the infrastructure. And um, the supercharger experience is generally pretty good. Uh, sometimes they don't charge as fast as they're, they're advertised and that kind of stuff. Those are all solvable problems. And I think that's what I come back to when I'm looking at, at, at Nikola too is, yeah, they may not have the refueling architecture there, but that seems almost like an easier problem to solve than building, you know, electric charging stations because it's real similar to how you refuel a gasoline car. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, it's easier to solve for the, tr- for the long haul trucks yeah. because, you know, of the more limited environments where they're going to be used. You don't need as many stations, but those pickup trucks, you know, right. you sell those to consumers. People expect to be able to use their vehicle anywhere, you know, wherever they go. And, you know, right now, unless you happen to live in California, you can't really do that, you know? So, yeah. So it's, it, you know, for the pickup truck right now, unless they're planning, you know, to build out a network of hydrogen stations across the country to support those too, that's not going to make any sense. Well, yeah, it, I'm curious about how that's going to work. Uh, there's certainly an opportunity there where you can you can work with, you know, a, a large petroleum company. Um, they they have ways to to produce and to deliver hydrogen they have networks of stations already it's not great like you know but well there's they, a sales they, they pitch could, there yeah but right? i mean they, they could have been doing that already oh they probably for, should have been yes <laughs> and they're not yeah. um so because and, and, this is yeah, the oil companies are actually the ones who produce most of the hydrogen today. yeah it's made from natural gas uh so here's or it's you know it's a byproduct of cracking um so I guess my question is because this is sort of a, a Silly Valley company and there's so much subterfuge, like, do we know that they're actually not doing anything or they're, they're actually based in Arizona? Oh, are they? Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're in they, Phoenix. they give off a good vibe. Uh, <laughs> um, it, that's still out West. That's, yeah. you know, <laughs> now I feel like an asshole. Anyway. Uh, but uh, do we know for a fact they're actually not not doing anything, or have they just not talked about it? You know, like you mean as far as uh, a network of general purpose try, hydrogen stations? Yeah, trying to partner or creating uh, um, some some like sort of more consumer facing, uh, higher density hydrogen charging stations. Because like at, at the, yeah, the very I, least, I, right? I don't, I don't know if they are doing anything or not. They haven't talked about it. I mean, yeah, you know, with the trucks with the long haul trucks, you know, they talked about that, you know, from day one, that was part of the plan from the beginning. Um, And, you know, that's, that's what helped them get a whole bunch of deposits from some really big fleet operators. Um, For, for the, you know, for the Badger, they haven't said a thing about it. So my guess is that not much is happening there. Yeah, that that could be. um... I I think the the Badger, I think is just going to be vaporware for, for the foreseeable future. 
Well, and I think that's actually a much harder thing to make any kind of profit on, no matter where yeah. they price it, anywhere below like $300,000. It's just not going to, they're not going to get any return, uh, no revenue from it. And yeah. uh, I mean, you could, you could easily, not easily, but you could conceivably solve that lack of hydrogen refueling. Again, truck it in and, you know, work on an infrastructure that is sort of more repeatable, sustainable uh, in the meantime, but like get the fuel to the people. That's not as difficult as getting the electricity to the people uh, in well, in my mind. Yeah. Just, you know, right now there's about 120,000 gas stations in the United States. There's 40 hydrogen stations. <laughs> right. So, but it's, I mean, it's just a tanker truck, right? With another hose, it's fine. <laughs> I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but um, it, it seems seems a little easier from the outside looking in to be able to say like, well, you could put hydrogen in the place where hydrogen is needed and then figure out, um, you know, with, with like with superchargers, right? It, you've got to put in transformers and all of the different. Yeah, I mean, you know, even, a, you know, a DC fast charging station, you know, costs a few hundred thousand dollars to install um whereas uh, a, a hydrogen station a conventional hydrogen station like you have in california today is about 1.2 1.3 million for one of those yeah so um that's not great either <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the whole thing that hydrogen explodes but well so does gasoline yeah that's, that's and, true. and for that matter so do so do lithium-ion batteries that's yeah uh, that's also very you, true. You, punct, you puncture a lithium ion battery. It's not a good, not a good thing. Now DC is nothing to mess with either. And <laughs> you know, hydrogen. You know, if you get a leak in a tank, you know, unless you know, as long as you don't have a, an ignition source, you know, it's it's so light, it's just going to evaporate. You know, disperse before you know pretty quickly. Um, you know, so in, in a lot of ways, it's actually safer to work with than gasoline. But yeah, just don't don't try to throw the rope down to dock in New Jersey, and you'll be all right. Yeah. You know, I think this is a great pivot for us too. To, to speaking of electric cars that burn up, um, <laughs> Lemons <laughs> has been uh, doing a lot more to promote. Uh, this this is a great uh, headline from Jalopnik. Lemons is doing more to promote or to advance electric racing than Le Mans, and and I think that's true um, because it's it's that sort of uh, run what you brung ethos that very lemons so. has and and i just i mean that's the racing that we all say we want anyway right like run regular cars run crap boxes make it make it fun uh instead of some sort of like high dollar spec series and and that's what's what's going on at, at tesla they've got a an extra purse for uh any team that can actually finish a race or no win one of the races win, win a race, on electric yeah. Race. yeah so that's really cool actually yeah so you know for those not familiar with lemons racing um you know the the basic premise is you know you can bring whatever you know race it you know and they run like 12 to 24 hour endurance races um the the, the main stipulation is that the car cannot cost more than 500 dollars. so anything up to 500 dollars in value not including the safety equipment so not including the roll cage and fire extinguishers and, and uh, harnesses and stuff like that so you know, I, I know a bunch of people that run lemons, you know, they 
have you know all kinds of you know clap you know really terrible cars and you know if you look around online you can find some if you look for photos of lemons races there's some hysterical stuff that's been raced but um you know and and to try to enforce that five hundred dollar limit one of the um one of the rules is that you know if uh you know you, you have to have you know receipts for everything and if uh if they think that you've cheated that you know you've actually spent more than five hundred dollars on the car if you race and win and they think you're too fast they can buy your car the organizers can buy your car from you for five hundred dollars so it's really there's no incentive to spend more than 500 bucks um fortunately the 500 does not include your sweat equity but uh um for uh for the electric racers they have uh introduced a fifty thousand dollar prize to, that goes to the first team to win a race with electric power and um so far there's been two cars that have entered only one is even remotely uh any good and that's uh an old dodge omni 024 that's uh been converted to electric and um the team that did this got uh uh original initially filled it with a bunch of uh deep discharge uh rv batteries uh but Currently, they're um, working on a configuration using a pair of used Chevy Volt batteries on uh, swappable racks, so they can do quick, uh, quick change, uh, quick battery change in the middle of the race. Um, and for the uh, for electric cars, they have ex uh, the series is uh, given an exclusion from the five hundred dollar limit for the electric powertrain stuff because that stuff is clearly more expensive right now. So the rest of the car still can't cost more than five hundred bucks but you get an exception for an electric powertrain. So that, that way they can do the batteries. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see who can, you know, who, who can build an EV that can actually win a lemons race. That's going to be pretty hysterical to watch. Well, it comes down to strategy. Uh, certainly you have to be able, you have to be fast enough to win, but there's, always attrition in endurance racing. So your thing just has to, has to be, fast enough to hold its own but it doesn't have to be exotic <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know oh and and most most lemons cars are not very fast yeah the speed's not that high that's not yeah. the, not the point with lemons <laughs> and you know, it's, you know it's the classic line about racing you know to finish first first you must finish you know? yeah and so like you know like you said you, know, you got to get you got to be there at the end and if you can do that you know then you've got a chance yeah and it makes me wonder too like so the RV batteries, like that's just a heavy, inefficient, yeah, they're not, they're, they're, they're just, acid. yeah, um, it works. It doesn't work great, but you know, there's a, there's a whole uh, cornucopia of options available to you to make one of these things on the cheap. Um, forklift parts are readily available and you can use forklift motors and inverters and stuff. And you know, you do have a transmission, so uh, you can get that thing up and you know, fourth or fifth gear, not using that much energy, <laughs> you know, electric motors have plenty of torque to drive that kind of stuff. And if you can figure out regen, like you could actually hang in. Um, yeah. Well, you know, in the article here, you know, he talks about, you know, the potential of taking an old uh, Toyota Celica or an early 90 Civic and, uh, you know, installing the, um, the hybrid drive unit from a Prius uh, you know, so just take the, um, you know, the electric motor and transmission from a Prius, skip the engine, uh, you know, and that's 
that's got 67 horsepower from a, a modern Prius uh, and almost 300 foot pounds of torque. So, I mean, that would actually be a really good powertrain to use. And then you just have to figure out the battery side of it. You probably need some kind of swappable battery system, but uh, it's, it's definitely doable. Yeah. See, this is the kind of thing that this, this improves the breed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Either the the worst part is going to be if if, if uh, sort of automakers and and big money concerns get in there and just ruin it all with their expensive tech. But I don't think yeah, that's I, I don't I don't think that's going to happen in lemons. Although there are a lot of <clears throat> a lot of auto engineers that do race lemons. Oh, I think it should be and, mandatory. And, and, I, I think and a lot of journalists do it too. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I'd love to do it. I think it's one of those things that should be. It should be required if you're you're engineering. <laughs> cars um because it really gives you that understanding of like what holds up what doesn't what you know where the improvements can be had and uh gets you really in touch with the 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 product and and i i honestly do believe that that racing improves the breed even the expensive stuff like nascar all the stuff that those uh series well i don't know about nascar you know no i I, (laughs) I mean they only just recently switched from carburetors to fuel injection a few years a couple of years ago i know but the those those teams work with engineering you know suppliers and partners and that stuff like the techniques that they use to make yes it's like it's it's a spec series and it's based on on a you know architecture that you would recognize in 1950 but uh everything is specialized and to make it that specialized is you know takes a lot of 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 talent and and skill and and i think there's a lot of hard work that gets sort of shortchanged by the fact that it is you know nascar um but i don't think it's any less high tech in that series than than you would find it at Le Mans or or anything you know i think it's just different um yeah but yeah it, it all of that stuff does wind up in our cars eventually. And it is, it is true as much as you may think it, it doesn't matter anymore. I think it actually really does. And then we've seen that with the endurance series uh, with, with electric cars um, it's, it's hard to do. And so I'm, I'm glad that we're doing it at, at both ends and we should definitely do lemons when we can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We've covered all of our topics. We had some, some actual listener feedback, which is nice. Um, they weren't swearing at us. <laughs> yeah, no, we actually had a couple of good questions here. So uh, let's see, let me find the first one here. So um, first one from Gareth Thomas, classic car challenge. You magically get a new extra garage bay and $15,000, but you must buy a classic car. What do you each get? Let's define classic cars, anything that's at least 25 years old, and it can't be a car you already own. Hmm. Well, that's not a problem. Uh, in terms of the car I already own, I, I shipped off <laughs> the Crown Victoria to my brother, so he gets he gets the family heirlooms, and now it's just the Jeep, and that's not classic yet. So, um, hmm. it's it's a little difficult. I did I did some thinking about this. It's really hard to narrow it down to just one. What what do you have? Well, I mean, you know, the obvious choice here would be you know an early NA Miata. Um, you know, which you can, you know, you can still find really nice examples for under 15 grand, although they, they have been getting more expensive in the last couple of years, but I was taking a look around, even on bring a trailer where the prices tend to be elevated. You know, there were, there were some 90, 91 Miatas, you know, with, you know, under, under a hundred, well, under, well under a hundred thousand miles on them, you know, for under 10 grand. But since I already own a 1990 Miata, um, you know, that obviously disqualifies that one for me. So I would say um, 
the the one I would probably choose is second generation Toyota MR2. Um, you know, which, you know, you can get those for, you know, easily for under 15 grand. Um, you know, the first gen, you know, the first gen were pretty cool, but they were, you know, they were a little too small and too tight for, for my, uh, for my taste. But, um, you know, I, I like the, I really like the look of the second gen MR2. Um, the third, you know, the third gen was the convertible. And I think that might fall, uh, outside of the 25 year range. I can't remember what year those came out. I think they came out in 95. So that might not qualify. So, but the second generation MR2, I think would probably be the one that I would pick. Okay. Um, I, it's still tough. There's a lot of cars I'd like, you know, I was thinking, I was like, I always wanted to have a, you know, an MN12 Thunderbird Super Coupe. Um, that's maybe not weird enough. <laughs> <laughs> didn't say anything uh, about weird yeah i know it's that's sort of my own kind of um criteria uh y- you know air-cooled volkswagens left a big mark on me um so a 412 uh especially like a 412 wagon <laughs> would what about would a corvair kind of cool uh, a corvair would be okay would not mind a corvair um you know, so it's it's really uh, those are sort of like I go for the the, the weirder stuff. Uh, first generation CRX. Um, oh yeah, nice. That's, that's a good choice. Yeah, yeah, especially the SI. Uh, those are super rare now. You don't even see them anywhere, well, and, and most awesome. of them have rusted away. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, again, that's why I, I was I thought about the Thunderbird. And I was like, ah, that's such a like. That's just like an extension of the, the 60s and 70s. Like, <laughs> what else do you see l- very little of um, that, you know, what, what's the car that would make me stop and just talk to the owner for 20 minutes if I saw it at like a, a car show or something? And, and it is, it's, it's weird stuff. Like, uh, um, like that CRX or an Isuzu, uh, Isuzu Stylus. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I, I like the, the different stuff. So, um, the, those are, those are two things I'd be searching for or three things the, the, for the 412 or, or a 69 square back. Um, yeah. And if with 15 grand, you can get a pretty nice air cooled VW and then you can have, have fun sort of swapping engines and stuff and playing around with it. There's, there's plenty of, of variety there the, the CRX I'd probably just want to, to leave pretty stock the CRX SI and then the, the, uh, Isuzu, the stylus, um, those can be a lot of fun. You, they, there, there's a lot of parts bin swapping you can do with, with, uh, those cars. You can, <laughs> some of the parts are really rare, but you can make your own sort of rally all wheel drive version of it. <laughs> yeah. The, well, you know, the and there, I mean, there's still a really thriving aftermarket. Yeah. There were so many of those, air-cooled VWs built over the years that there's lots of parts that you can find. There's lots of people doing stuff with them. You know, it's easy, you know, easy to find all kinds of aftermarket things that you can add to that to make it more interesting, you know, or, or do stuff with it. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's a very much like, it's funny you mentioned the Corvair, like that's one of the things that um, what gets me about the air-cooled Volkswagens and the, and the Corvair too is just, uh, the the depth of engineering on display. There's a lot of challenges they had to solve, especially with the Corvair. Yeah. Um, that they they solved very 
very methodically, very cleverly. Uh, you know, think about cooling that middle cylinder on that flat six with, with air, air cooling, like just keeping that cylinder head from, from melting those, the, those middle cylinders. It's not easy, you know, and, and they figured it out in, you know, 1956. Yeah. Uh, well, they, so you know, they, cool. they put all their effort into cooling that, uh, you know, and then went with swing axles. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. no engineering resources left for a decent suspension. But that's what <laughs> that's look, just you, know, you just got to stagger the tire pressure. Um, that's one of the things that keeps me out and like thinking more modern too is the the stuff, even the even the 412 would be mid 70s, early to mid 70s. And we're just at a place where cars are safer, cleaner, more efficient when you get into the 80s. Um, and, and it really does make a difference. You know, yeah, the CRX is small, but it's not, the, the steering column is not going to spear you. <laughs> you know, like, of course, uh, you know, the, the body is just going to, you know, kind of collapse like a, like a, uh, you know, a ball of aluminum foil, but yeah, don't hit anything. It's yeah. nimble. It's nimble though. The only car that could beat it in what, 84 when it debuted, the only car that could out slalom it was a Ferrari Testarossa. So I, I know. <laughs> and you know, the, the, the CRX was about half the width of the Ferrari. So yeah, that's true. The Testarossa is really wide. I didn't yeah. realize how wide it was until I saw some, um, a, fr- a friend of mine has, um, one a, a rare uh, CRX convertible uh, back in the mid eighties. Uh, Richard Strayman, who did a lot of mm. uh, convertible conversions back then, including the Testarossa. Um, he uh, he built some uh, CRX convertibles, and he's got one. Um, and uh, he bought it about three years ago, I think. Uh, bought it out in in California or New Mexico, and drove it back to Michigan. And you sit in this thing. It's amazing how tiny this, I mean, it makes my Miata look big. Yeah. It's it's funny. And it it is, it's especially now where everything is so huge because it was a small car even when it was new, but it wasn't that small. You know, it was, it was a Civic. But yeah, I mean, you know, the the CRX only weighed, I think about 1700 pounds. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it it, didn't have much power, but you know, you didn't need it with that kind of weight. Yeah. It's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a drag racer. That's not no, what it's no. not what it's for. But um, yeah, with, with so little weight, you know, you don't need much tire either, you know, to still have great handling. Well, that's, you know, that's a good point. And that, I wonder, so you're not running into this with your Miata now, are you? Where you can't find good tires uh, in the no, right the, size? The Miata, the Miata is new enough. And the, the guy I bought it from actually put on a set of 15 inch wheels. Yeah. So, but even 14s, you know, the original, you know, the, the stock wheels on there were 14s. So you can still find decent 14 inch wheels or 14 inch tires. Um, you know, but things like the 13s, you know, uh, that were on those, on those early CRXs uh, and 12s, you know, that were on some, you know, a lot of uh, cars in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and even into the early 80s. Um, are getting to be really hard to find. Yeah, you can find tires that will fit, but the, the compound is uh, there's good luck with that like high yeah. performance tire. Like it just doesn't doesn't exist anymore. Right. So that those are considerations too. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess sort of the last thing that pops to mind would be a first or second generation RX seven. So yeah, that's that that's another great one um, that you know f- definitely fits, especially the first gen fits into that price point. Now, you know, with that, especially with the first gen, 
you know, you're depending on where you live, you may have a very hard time getting it to pass emissions. Yeah. That's uh, true. You know, and they, they do consume a lot of oil and they're, you know, they also consume a lot of gasoline. So you got to keep that in mind, but you can get those for a pretty decent price. And you know, a lot of them are still in pretty good condition. Yeah. I, it's too bad Rebecca's not here. I'd love to hear what her choices are. We'll have to keep this question around and yeah. uh, pose it to her next time. All right. So the other question came from uh, Sam Monteith. Um, and um, let's see. Uh, we're, we're in the market for a new car this year. We keep our cars about 10 years or more. Uh, so we've stayed with Toyota for, for years. We currently have a 2006 IS250, Lexus IS250, a 2012 Tundra, and a 2017 RAV4. My wife wanted an electric car, but we decided we'll most likely get a hybrid. I'm very interested in the RAV4 plug-in hybrid. I see that it has been delayed a bit due in the fall. Um, I think it's still coming late summer or, you know, definitely by the fall it'll be here. Uh, there may have been some some delays, but not, it won't be by much. Um, we like that for short trips. It can operate like an electric car. I'm concerned with the first year of a new car. Uh, quality issues, your thoughts. Is this powertrain in any other cars anywhere? I'd love to see a detailed review of the car. Um, I just read that Ford's coming out with the Escape plug-in hybrid, which we talked about earlier. Um, and uh, I do plan to do a review of that as soon as I can get my hands on one. Uh, comparison two would be great. Uh, we're also considering a traditional hybrid and looking at the Honda CRV or the RAV4. Uh, Rebecca's report on the noisy CRV electric motor is very concerning. I do consider a Honda number one, uh, Honda number one or two brand to Toyota for reliability. And I would consider your response. I would appreciate response if you plan on these reviews. So um, yeah, you know the uh, I'm getting a, high, uh, a CRV hybrid in a couple of weeks to drive, so we'll let you know pretty soon if that was a, a one-off problem in the car Rebecca drove, or if it's a common issue. But you know, certainly, you know the the plug-in hybrid uh, Rav4. You know, even though it's first year for that model, I would not be concerned about it because basically, you know, it's this, it's the same hardware that's in the existing Rav4 hybrid, and that Toyota uses in pretty much every hybrid they build, you know, they almost, almost all of their mainstream models are available with hybrid powertrains and they're all basically the same. Uh, in some cases, you know, the motors scaled up or down a little bit depending on the size of the vehicle. But, you know, in the, the RAV4, you know, the really the only notable difference between um, the, uh, the regular RAV4 hybrid and the plug-in uh, is going to be the size of the battery. You know, so you're going to be carrying, you know, dragging around a little more weight for that battery. But, you know, aside from that, I, I wouldn't worry about the reliability of it at all. And frankly, the, the same is true, you know, for the, for the Ford as well, for the escape plug-in hybrid. Um, you know, the RAV4, at least based on, you know, we haven't got official EPA numbers on it yet. You know, Toyota, uh, the numbers Toyota's projected are a little bit more for range for the RAV than what Ford's got for the escape. But, you know, they're both, you know, pretty close, you know, that upper 30s to 40 mile range, which, you know, for most of your driving means you can go without using any gas. And then, you know, when you want to do a road trip, you just go. And, you know, these modern plugins, you know, unlike, you know, the, the C-Max uh, plug-in hybrid or the Fusion Energy plug-in hybrid that Ford sold before, these were actually designed, you know, to, with, you know, to package protect for the, the 
battery anyway. So, you know, they, you don't give up in either the RAV or the Ford, uh, you're not giving up any cargo space to that battery. You know, it all, it all fits in there really nicely. So it's, you know, they're really, they're both going to be really practical alternatives for you. I, I think you need to, um, to try them because they're all so similar. They're all like right on top of each other, the CRV, the RAV4 and the escape. And you probably don't even need to wait until the hybrids are all out. Just go try them now and get a sense of the flavor of the vehicle because the, the thing that's going to probably make, you know, make the sale for you is whether you can figure out how everything works. Um, the, the, again, we come back to just operating the car and the infotainment and, the the view out and uh, the just the the ride and drive character. I think that hybrid aside, that's what what sets these three apart from each other. And I I can't I can't say that any of them are necessarily better than the other. They're all very competitive. They all have a slightly different flavor, and so you got to figure out which which you like the best. Um, I know that of the three, I probably like the Ford's um, infotainment the best because <laughs> uh, Toyota's getting a little better. Honda's, I don't know. It's been a while since I've been in a CRV, but uh, you know, those two, they seem to, while they are market leaders, they seem to lag. Um, and so if that's important to you, if you do, you know, Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, or you just, you know, you need Nav a lot or whatever, uh, play with them and, and go, go spend some, some time, some, some research. Um, I do wonder why the decision to go hybrid versus uh, EV. I wonder if that comes back to wanting to cover all the bases and have a vehicle that you don't have range anxiety or anything, but you have a couple of other vehicles. Um, you know, the IS250 is a little bit tight. The Tundra is a little bit inefficient. So maybe if you wanted something that you could do, Longer trips. Well, and they have efficiency. a they, they have a, a twenty seventeen Rav four already. Yeah, um, uh, but they're I think they're replacing the they're probably replacing the IS, which is the oldest of the three okay. that they have. Because uh, I was going to say, like, if if you've got something that you can do a, a road trip with that you trust, then there's really not an argument for not going full EV. Um, but well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> there's well, less it, of an argument you know, you know? It, it depends on where you live i mean you know yeah. since they have three vehicles i'm assuming they live you know a single family home you know have a driveway and a garage so they could plug in um you know i, I i'm i'm assuming they don't live in an apartment with those three vehicles oh he says they're 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 in california about an hour from petaluma so oh okay northern california oh so. yeah so you know that's you know easy climate so you're not going to be worrying about winter weather um, you know, I, I wouldn't rule out an EV, you know, I would definitely, you know, if, if, and if you want to look at an EV, I would definitely look at the Kia Nero, um, electric, um, and, and actually the Nero is also available as, uh, both a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid, but you know, the electric, you know, has 240 mile range. Um, you also take a look at the Hyundai Kona electric. Um, the Kona has got about 260 mile range, 259 miles. Kona is a little tight compared to these. That's yeah. So I was going to say the Kona's back seat is definitely tighter. The the Nero is a little you know a little roomier, a little more practical. Um, and then um, look at the Chevy Bolt. You know the Bolt is an excellent car. Um, yep. You know got lots of room inside. 
you know, despite its small physical footprint on the road, it's, it's surprisingly roomy inside, you know, decent cargo space, um, you know, and, you know, it, it's, you know, it's pretty reasonably priced as well. So, you know, definitely take a look at those three uh, electrics as well. But yeah, I mean, even before the, the plugins, the plug-in hybrids are on the dealer lots, you know, go and, and take a look at the, um, the hybrid versions, you know, go drive those, you know, because they're, they're ba- the hybrids are going to drive basically the same as the plug-in hybrid. Yeah, that's true. Uh, except that you're going to go farther on electricity. Uh, so, you know, go drive them, uh, you know, see if you like the way they, they look and they feel and the, the controls work for you. Um, and try out those three electrics, the, the Kona, uh, the Nero, and the, uh, the Bolt. Okay. That's how we solve that problem. Let us know what you get. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, I think with that, let's call it a show. Yeah, uh, so we'll be back soon. Um, so thanks for listening, and uh, we'll uh, you, you know where to hit us up. So please keep doing so, and I will let you know what I wind up with when I'm when I'm car shopping. I've moved on from uh, <laughs> Mercedes wagons. I had a, a that Silverado that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was like, man, it's, it's not bad having a truck. <laughs> so now I'm like, it's a lot harder to find a good used pickup truck than it is to find a good used Mercedes wagon. <laughs> Most well, actually, now that you mentioned the Mercedes, you know, I mean that, you know, if you could have gotten that for fifteen grand, that would have been a well. It wasn't twenty-five years old though, so never mind. No, no, I mean you can definitely get a you can you can get an old Mercedes, but I, I've done the I wanted something weirder. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, all right. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.